0: And the time is 10 o'clock. This is Community Radio, WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and 102.9 Bangor. Stay tuned for Boat Talk.
1: And if I had a boat, I'd go out on the ocean. And if I had a pony, I'd ride on my boat. up on my pony on my were Rogers, be single I couldn't bring myself to marry
2: Well, good morning and welcome to, uh, to Boat Talk. This is uh, Alan Sprague along here with the handsome Mike Joyce here for one hour of uh, Boat Talk. This is not going to be a whole lot of talk, it's going to be a lot of listen today.
0: We got a uh, good sea story in the can this morning. Excellent sea story. And I showed up this morning and I was going to trim it down and I got to listening to that and it's like, wow. (laughs) (laughs) It's not only a heck of a sea story, it also turns into a legal thriller. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, Laws of the Sea, uh, Safety and Salvage, and uh, pretty interesting tale. It is. Um, I should tell listeners our phone number
2: is 866-625-9378. You might want to write that down because we're not going to interrupt the uh, story. 866-625-9378. But don't bother to call because this this story goes on for um, about 40 minutes. So you'll be on hold for a long time if you call now. But I think, uh, what do you say, we just dive right into this interesting story. It's a
0: Alan uh, interviewed Captain Skip Strong yep, of Mount it.
2: Desert. He's from Mount Desert. In 1994, he was a, uh, a captain
0: of an oil tanker that was off the coast of Florida. Got into a storm, got a call from the uh, Coast Guard about a May Day and ended up uh, rescuing a tug and barge that was connected to NASA. Yeah. And ensued the largest ever marine salvage payoff in history that ensued is that a pun (laughs) wow (laughs) gotcha on that one I couldn't even see that one coming (laughs) you got an ear for it actually I guess but anyway uh we forgive you and how about if we uh check out the story from Captain Skip Strong himself
3: I was uh in 1994 I was captain of an oil tanker called the Cherry Valley um for Keystone Shipping Company she's 688 feet long, 90 feet wide, and drew 35 feet when she was fully loaded. And we were on a voyage from the Mississippi River to Jacksonville, Florida. But we, um, <clears throat> we proceeded around the, the Florida Keys, and as we were going around the Florida Keys, the, the storm had come by. Cuba picked up speed, turned into a tropical storm. And did a hard left when it re- got over the top of Cuba and came straight uh, right into the Straits of Florida and uh, sort of made a beeline for us. But uh, maximum winds about 40 knots at that time. So not a real problem for our ship, but we were going straight into the Gulf Stream. So we we're seeing 25, 30-foot seas out in the Gulf Stream as the winds were coming out of the northeast and we're headed to either to the east or northeast as we're rounding the keys basically what we call square seas i mean you know 30 feet high 30 feet apart mm. i mean just really ugly seas and <clears throat> we were proceeding around there and we wound up hearing this um the mayday call from a little small haitian freighter that was out there um they had wound up taking on water um were in danger of sinking the coast guard came out there airlifted the nine people off of the, um, the, the ship, and as well as the ship's dog, <laughs> airlifted these guys off, you know, rescue swimmer in the water, um, uh, getting all these people off. So we were pretty interested in listening to this as it was going on. Pretty high drama there, considering it's only taking place 20 miles in front of us. And we actually passed by about three miles off the ship after they'd taken the whole crew off. And it was all done at that point in time. But that was pretty exciting. We thought that was our excitement for the storm here. The storm continued on past uh, sort of by Key West or stall just north of Key West. And as we were going around the Keys um, and up the east coast of Florida, we thought, great, we're going to be getting out of this thing. We're going to be moving away from this storm. It's down there. It's not going to be a problem. What we weren't really paying attention to was this big low-pressure system sitting off of the Keys was also interacting with a high-pressure system off the Carolinas. And both of them were feeding in northeast winds to feed these two systems. And we wound up being in the convergence zone of these two systems very early in the morning on the 15th of November um, off the east coast of Florida. And another vessel that was in there that got caught was the tug J.A. Ogeron and the barge Poseidon. And they'd wound up having engine difficulties. Um, Combination of problems, overdue for engine maintenance, Bad fuel, um, as well as just stirring up all the sediment in their tanks. And they were Mm. really having problems keeping their engines going. They lost one cylinder on the port engine. They thought they'd thrown a valve in one cylinder on the port engine. So they had to shut that one down. They're now down to one engine that they can run. They're starting to lose some cylinders on there, and they don't know why. So they're basically down to one engine at clutch speed, um, trying to maintain position. And they're in... 15 to 20-foot seas, some of them up to 25, um, 40 to 50-knot winds, gust to 60 knots. And they're sort of maintaining position in there. Um, not bad. They figured, well, we're going to be out of this in a little while. The weather's going to moderate, and we'll get our problems solved, and we'll continue on. But they called the Coast Guard to let them know what was happening out there. No, Not a distress call, not anything else, just an information call. About 1 o'clock in the morning on November 15th, <clears throat> they lost the starboard engine. Mm. So now they're down with no engines. They basically, you know, they've restarted their port engine. Um, they know they've got one cylinder down on that, but they've had to restart that one because their starboard engine is just, is down.
2: And they were towing a barge.
3: And They were towing a barge at the time. And the barge, <clears throat> which we didn't know anything about it at this point in time, but it was very light um, and it had a lot of sail area on it. And this barge was starting to pull them towards the coast of Florida, it was pulling them downwind mm-hmm. at about two and a half to three knots. And so these guys were about thir- fifteen miles off the coast of Florida when all this was going on, one o'clock or so in the morning. Um, and they put out, um, and then well, they were running their starboard engine at that point in time, and all of a sudden they started having an exhaust fire in mm-hmm. this in the stack. What had happened is they'd. Blown injectors on the four out of the eight cylinder heads, and they were pumping straight diesel fuel through the heads and into the exhaust system. And as the exhaust would heat up, as they were running it, you'd reach the auto ignition temperature of the diesel, you'd have fires in the exhaust stack. They blew out part of the exhaust stack into the upper level of the engine room on the tug, and so they were having, you know, fire in the engine room. So these guys are in. Twenty-foot seas, fires in the engine room, no engines, and getting tossed around like, you know, it's just not a very fun night for them. That's when they put out their mayday call to the Coast Guard. Coast Guard relayed that out, and my the second mate who was on watch, Jim Kuiper, was up there listening to listening to this, heard the uh, heard the call, put their position down, said, hey, we you know it's gonna, right about where we're going to be in a few hours from now. Gave me a call down in my stateroom. Called me up to the bridge. We went and looked at it. They were about 35, 40 miles in front of us at that point in time. Um, we couldn't do anything right then, but we were certainly heading in that direction. We were making about 14 and a half, 15 knots at that point in time. We called the Coast Guard back and said, we'll be in the area in about three hours, but there's not a whole lot we can do right now. Hopefully they'll either solve their problems or someone else will come in and be able to give these guys a hand. Um, turns out, no one else answered the call. There weren't very many people out there that night. It was pretty, pretty miserable out there. Uh, the Coast Guard really couldn't come out at that point in time because it was really hard for them to get out of the inlets. And unless the guys on the Ojeron were going to say that, yeah, we're in danger of dying, um, we're not able to come. We're not coming out right now. And when they're still 15 miles off the beach, that's a long ways out there. The problem that they had. Lurking right out there to lure of them was there's a shoal area off the coast of Florida there in in just above Fort Pierce called Bethel Shoal, about 28 foot shoal area, and these guys were drifting right towards it. Mm. Now for them it's not that big of a deal. The tug only drew 14 feet. The barge was drawing nine feet. But as we were getting up there and getting closer to them, we were the only person who answered the call. We were the only one that could go and give those guys a hand. And said, "We're drawing 35 feet on my ship. There's no way we're getting anywhere near a 28-foot shoal, especially you know in 25-foot seas. So we were. Uh, if they wanted our help, we were going to have to do something quickly. Once we got up there, we talked about our options, which was one, um, dropping the barge, having the tug let the barge go." Um, and then they would be able to hopefully stay on clutch speed on their one engine, come up to us. We could get a line to the tugboat. Um, if they really start having fires in the engine room, drop the barge, get the tug alongside us, take the five guys off the tugboat, let the tugboat go also. Or try and take all, you know, take the tug and the barge in tow. Um, and see what we could do to try and keep them safe until the weather moderated which we all thought was going to happen relatively quickly since this wasn't a very powerful um storm but we were sort of in this convergence zone so we were really getting the stuffing kicked out of us by both systems both the high pressure and the low pressure Uh, we got up on the scene about four o'clock in the morning coast guard wasn't able to come out tugboat uh, these guys were saying listen we'll take any assistance you can give us and so as Captain I decided all right, we will try to get maneuver in there to uh, be able to put up a couple lines to the tug tugboat and first of all try the tug try and tow the tug and barge out of the area. How far away from the shoal area were you at that time? About three miles. Ooh. We're three miles to windward of the shoal. <clears throat> you didn't have too long to work. No. And they were drifting, the barge was pulling them at about two and a half to three knots to the west. Mm-hmm. So we were uh, once we got up on on sea there, we figured we had about an hour to get stuff done if yeah. if we were going to be of help. Just to the east of the shoal area was a um, uh, is a 60-foot curve or the you know 10 fathom curve, and that was the spot where we said there is absolutely no way we're going west of this line. We're just not going to get, you know, we I'm not going to take my ship west mm-hmm. of there. That's just too dangerous for what's going on. We were carrying 10 million gallons of number six fuel oil, and the idea that putting my ship aground in a tropical storm on a lee shore with 10 million gallons of six oil, Joe Hazelwood would have been a footnote to my name. <laughs> um, as bad as this spill was up there, um, it would have it would have been really bad. Yeah. So we we had some, I had set some pretty strict things of what we were going to be able to do. But with that in place, we decided to try to pass the, um, try and pass two of our mooring lines to the tug, pick up the tug and tow, and then the barge and pull them out of there. The first thought we had was we were going to approach from the south. And the winds at this point in time are out of the east, northeast, southeast. It's a little bit variable in there depending on what was going on. But our thought was as we were approaching from the south, we were going to go up in there and try and make a breakwater in front of the tugboat. We would be beamed to in the seas with the tugboat off of our port side, try and get a, a, a line throwing gun to shoot a line over to the bow of the tug, tie that onto a messenger, and that the tugboat could pull the messenger then that had two of our mooring lines attached to that. Try and get that over to the bow of the tug and then pull the tug and the barge away. We figured we had to be within about two to 300 feet of the tugboat in order to make this all work. Which, 200 feet is a lot of distance, except when you're doing it in 25, 30-foot seas. It's, <laughs> it's hard to judge that. And all this is happening middle of the night. Um, the rain started just about 4.30 in the morning and came down in absolute buckets. So visibility was limited, too? Visibility was down to, at times, less than 300 feet. Jeez. Um, they had 11 inches of rain in 24 hours there. So we were, uh, not ideal conditions for trying to do this stuff. The first pass, we looked at it as we were approaching, making this approach. We were going to have to turn in. I was going to have to keep turning towards the shoal to reach the tugboat on this first pass that we wanted to attempt. And it just kept feeling bad. It did not feel right. So Mm we, we, um, Quit that attempt. I got the ship turned around. We went up and did a, a U-turn and came down, and we're now headed south. A six hundred foot vessel fully loaded is not real easy to turn around. No, either. it's not easy to turn around. Uh, it's and we're steam. The one one thing that really helped us was we were a steam turbine ship, hmm. which means I've got it's a fully manned engine room. I've got engineers down there at the throttle controls all the time, and they can. By hand, adjust everything that they need to, so they can give me anywhere from zero to seventy-eight RPMs uh, very quickly. They, uh, if the as the stern of the ship would come out of the water and the prop would start to get you know up in the air a little bit, they dial the steam pressure down, slow the prop down, get back in the water, pick it back up again. Uh, if we'd been a motor ship or a diesel ship, there's no way we would have been able to do this. We just wouldn't have had the control. Hmm. But still turning a 700 foot ship and stuff like this in tight quarters is is it's an art form <laughs> um <clears throat> we made our second our second attempt or our real first attempt at passing the lines we turned around we're headed south on the ship um and we get close enough to them where you get beam to in the seas broadside to the seas tugboats about 350 feet off on our starboard side uh, the second mate is prepared with a Payne's Wessex line-throwing gun. It's a rocket-propelled line-throwing gun. Shoots the thing off. um, It's one of those things that you don't really want to aim it right at what you're shooting at because you're sending a rocket-propelled object right at it, and you don't want to hit what you're actually aiming for. So the trick is to try and aim over it. With the wind going uh, at about 50 knots, the Thing had a tendency, as soon as it shot out, it went straight up into the cloud cover, which was only about 300 feet. And we lost this thing. Couldn't see it, had no idea where it went. Um, And we're, meanwhile, I'm trying to slow the ship down all the time so we don't get in front of this guy. Um, uh, The ship, fully loaded, weighs about 44,000 tons. um, Trying to stop that going downwind. is difficult in those conditions. So we overshot the tugboat before we could really get another approach ready to go or another line throwing gun ready to go. They were about 600 feet astern of us and it was out of range for what we wanted to do. So our first attempt failed. We circled around, we did what we call a racetrack turn. We just went around in a complete circle Came back around, got set up again on the starboard side for a second approach. This time, we we were coming in close enough, and we we're going to try to use a heaving line, just a piece of 3 8 inch polypro with a monkey's fist on the end of it. And we we're going to try and get close enough to the tugboat that we could just use this to get across. As just a, manually throw manually it. Manually throw it across. Have one of the guys so down had on to deck. Get really close. Yeah, we we had to be within a hundred feet to make this one work. The other thing that was happening. My ship, fully loaded, only has 12 and a half feet of freeboard. We're broadside to these seas, 20-foot seas. Um, when we're down on the trough and the lee side or the windward side scoops into the waves, we're taking four to five, six feet of water running across the deck. So my guys had to be pretty careful about where they stood and what they were doing. All oh, so with lifelines, I assume? Uh, no, we actually—it's uh, not set up for lifelines. In, uh-huh. in those conditions— we don't normally go out on deck in conditions yeah. like that. So we don't really have lifelines set up for things mm. like that. So these guys were just being very careful and basically staying in the lee of the house the ship and staying out of stuff until I get the ship turned around enough so that the house would act as a breakwater for the guys on deck and then they could move around in the lee of the house. Got close enough to use the heaving line, got it across about a 50-foot throw, got it across to the bow of the tug. And the tug was able to use their engines, uh, their one engine, their port engine, intermittently. You know, two or three minutes at a time, they'd be able to use their engine, and they'd have to shut it down because it was overheating again. Mm-hmm. So they were able to, as we get a little bit, you know, as we'd get in position, and our ship slowed down, they would be able to at least bring the bow, bow of the tug up into the seas. Um, and we were acting as a breakwater, so they'd be able to sort of get a little bit closer to us and hold it up in there while we'd get the heaving line across. We had two messenger lines rigged up. One of them was 400 feet, one of them was 1,000 feet. Um, We got the short one hooked up, and we were still moving at about, about a half a knot, which was just enough to get the tug moving astern of us before we could get everything hooked up. And by the time we got the mooring lines hooked up, the small heaving line was stretched to the breaking point. Uh, And even trying to, you know, emergency full astern on my ship, trying to, you know, back it it down as hard as we could, we just couldn't slow it down in time. Mm
4: -hmm. Um,
3: So the second pass didn't work either. We then made, we figured we had a chance to do one more pass. We're now just over a mile away from this, 60 fathom or the six six fathom, six what a ten fathom curve excuse me the ten fathom curve 60 foot line just over a mile away from that we've lost two and a half miles roughly since we started this whole thing we've i figure we've got time for one more pass that's it then we're done um we do the same thing circle all the way around again get set up we know we can do it with a heaving line we get and I figured out what I have to do for the speed at this point in time to get us slowed down. We make our turn. We get set up in the position again, pass over the, uh, get close enough. The tug gets up there just about amidships of us, pointed right to us. And instead of having one of my guys have to throw the line over there, he was actually able to reach, stand at the edge of the rail, and hand the heaving line to one of the guys on the bow of the tug. And they literally were coming down one foot off the side of the ship as their bow was straight to our starboard side they started slowly working down but we were we were beam to in the sea so we're rolling pretty heavily we're almost dead in the water i mean it's uh, the ship is or the tug is moving down at essentially a walking pace a very slow walking pace but as he starts sliding down the ship towards the stern he folds in to our side so his port side is right next to our starboard side and we're rolling together now in these 20 foot swells and as I'm standing on the bridge wing looking down, these guys are frantically, there are three guys on the tugboat who are frantically you know, pulling in this. Now we have the 1,000-foot messenger on, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> tied in there. So they're pulling all of this 1,000-foot messenger on board to get to our two mooring lines. As I'm standing on the bridge wing looking down, I can see their after deck. And I can see the tow wire that's leading to the barge. The barge is downwind of us, but... The tow wire's leading over the port quarter of the tug, which is right next to our side, you know, our starboard side of the ship. And it's right in the area where a propeller and yeah, rudder are. Yeah, a good chance to grab that, huh? Well, and, it, and the problem is we're only operating in about 70 feet of water. <clears throat> and I know that they've got 1,500 feet of wire out to this tug. What I don't know is does it lead right underneath the tug? Is it a big bite on the bottom that's underneath the ship? So we're in a little bit of a precarious situation at this time, because I can't use either my propeller or my rudder until I know these guys are clear. Because if all it it would take is, you know, one wrap of wire around my wheel, and I'm going to be agrounded. we would be three vessels in distress. There'd be three vessels in distress. So we we got the captain of the tug, who was one of the most calm people I've ever dealt with in a high-stress situation, got him to back the tug, you know, just whatever he had left on that one engine, back it just so he was clear, just so he was sliding astern. The guys managed to get both lines connected to the bow of the tug, and then we started being able to um, surge out about 600 feet of mooring line that we had. Uh, the lines we had were 700, roughly 700 feet long. We figured we'd put out about 600 feet of line These between... Are pretty big ropes, I assume, that what... These are three eight inch, eight inch, eight inch, inch. Cir- inch circumferences. So yeah, roughly three inch diameter lines. You don't handle those easily. No, the uh, one hundred and thirty five thousand pound breaking strength wow. when they're new. I mean, these are big. These are the lines we tie the ship up with. Mm. But we had these. We got them out there. We are uh, surging them out. Now we have to make the whole trick of getting all three of these vessels moving. And this is where the steam turbine on my ship really helped again. We could just dial it up. You know, we could have the engineers increase it. You know, one RPM at a time. And as the tension came up on the lines, the chief mate and second mate on the stern with the the deck crew were back there. They would surge these lines out, keep the tension up on them, try to get everything going in the same direction while I'm trying to get us moving away from the shore. We're sort of pointed about, we're pointed due south, um, but we're making about 195, 200 you know, we're setting to the west we're getting closer to the shoal all the time we're about six tenths of a mile away six ship lengths mm-hmm. is well, we're away from this sort of drop dead point where i'm going to be and the trick was to try and get enough speed on that we could turn into the seas and turn out and head due east and get away from there without putting so much strain on the lines that we parted them because if we parted the lines at this point in time that's it we're done there end of another, story there wasn't anything else we could do the only thing we could do at that point in time is those guys would have dropped the barge, tried to use their one, you know, use their engine for a couple of minutes to get back up close enough to us that we could try and catch them. So as all of this is now happening, we're trying to work our way from this. I've got the radio operator back in the um, chart room just calling off the thousandths on the longitude, which is essentially a meaningless number. I mean, especially back in 1994, you had your accuracy was at best 300 feet. Um, the, and the, the thousands thing is just, it, it's, you know, it's six feet. It mm-hmm. doesn't mean anything. Yeah. But he was sitting there just calling that number out. And if it was increasing, it meant we were going to the west. If it started to steady up or decrease, it meant we were making ground to the east and getting away from there. So we spent the next 35, 40 minutes working our way, you know, trying to figure out the balance to get away from the shoal and just find a heading that worked, so that we weren't getting closer to the shoal. We finally wound up setting up on a course of about 145, um, with speed on the ship of what we should have been making of about four knots. And what we were really doing is we were making good 180 um, and making a speed of one knot, towing these guys behind us. And now it was also getting light out. So I could finally see this barge. And when we talked about this earlier, all the captain on the tug told me was, it's a light barge. It doesn't have a lot of weight to it, but it's got a lot of sail area. Mm -hmm. And as I could finally see this barge, it's like, wow, I've never seen a barge like that. I've been to sea for 10 years now, but I've never seen a barge that looks like this. called the captain back and said, what the hell do you have back in there? And he said, well, I didn't want to tell you before, but it's the liquid fuel cell for the space shuttle. But, But don't worry, it's inerted. <laughs> and uh, it was uh, it was one of those things that my radio operator, who had had several different careers before becoming a radio operator, had worked for Martin Marietta uh, and knew somewhat about the space program. He said, and he passed me a little note that says, "That's a valuable piece of property back there." Um, which was interesting at the time, but didn't really hold much significance to us because we're still trying to get ourselves worked away from the shoal and get ourselves worked out of there. I also figured the other thing I ought to do is now call my office and tell them that, you know, something unusual has happened out here. I called my boss at home, our fleet manager for the company. Woke him up at home about 6.45 in the morning or so and said, Art, I'm going to be a little late getting to Jacksonville today. He said, well, there's a storm down there slowing you down. I said, yeah, the storm's... You know, not too bad, but it's slowing us down a little bit. But what's really slowing me down is the and barge I'm towing astern <laughs> of me. <laughs> and I had his full attention at that point in time. Yeah. Um, and I gave him about a, a minute and a half rundown of what went on and said, listen, we're safe, the ship's safe, the crew's safe. Um, I'll call you at 9 with more information. And about this time, we also started getting a call from the NASA harbormaster who had been over there, sort of getting ready to oversee the, the transshipment of this barge from uh, Port Canaveral up to Cape Canaveral. And he was down there, and he got a hold of our phone number from the Coast Guard and was calling us and said, listen, we've got another tugboat that's uh, underway already, should be out to you guys in a couple hours. I said, oh, great, we're only going to be doing this for a couple hours. Later on, and that morning, he kept working his way towards us, but there were times when this guy was just absolutely stopped cold. I mean, there were times when he was going backwards. And we just had to, we were just sitting there holding on to this guy, sort of just waiting for him to show up. Um, You know, first he was going to be there at 9 o'clock, then 10, then Mm -hmm. 11. He finally got up to us at noontime, but the squall that was going through at that time had been over the top of us for. Two and a half hours at that point in time already. It just horizontal rain, fifty to sixty knots of wind. Yeah, the seas were a solid fifteen, twenty feet, but they were getting beaten down by the rain. But he just couldn't make progress up to it. So said there's no way we're gonna try this transfer until yeah, we can we have a little bit better conditions out here. Finally at about fourteen hundred, we said we are gonna have to try this and because their plan was to take this. Tug and barge, the South Bend, this tug that had come out was going to tow the Ogeron and the barge into Fort Pierce, which was going to be a real trick in itself, trying to tow this guy in through a rock jetty, you know, downwind and 50 knots of wind. But that's. Yeah. Ships don't tow tugs and barges. Tugs can do the towing. So mm-hmm. we thought this was going to be the best process. Uh, the tug got up into the station, got up just Upwind of the other tug, sent over a heaving line with a messenger line, and then they're going to pull in their their hawser. Now this is a little smaller boat than we were initially led to believe. Um, it was basically a harbor boat, um, uh-huh. very small, 1,600 horsepower single screw boat. Didn't have a towing winch on board. It had a capstan and a soft hawser. Um, a little underpowered for the job, but we were all like, listen. We're not supposed to be doing this to begin with. Um, let's see if you guys can get in there and do this. Um, and as they got it up there, they were pulling the bridle in onto the Ogeron from the south bend when the, uh, the wire, uh, they had a wire bridle on it, got stuck in the bullnose of the, um, or the staple on the, on the Ogeron, and they parted the messenger line. And so all this soft hawser that they had coiled up on the after deck had gone over the side. So now he, this guy, the South Bend, has 1,800 feet of their hawser in the water, and they have to pull it back on board by hand before they can try this again. And because of the, the way things are going on, um, he can't do it hove to or just sitting in the sea. He needs to be going downwind. So he's got to run off you know just basically going with the seas while his two deckhands pull this hawser back on board. He figures this is going to take another two hours to do. And then they will be able to hopefully come back up and try again. We already know that they're no longer going to be able to make it into the inlet before daylight or before nightfall. The um, the captain on the Ogeron is saying, eh, I'm not so sure I really want to go with that little tugboat. So you're doing things pretty well here. But we're also getting to the point where we're going to start running out of room again because the coast of Florida starts curving back out to the east. So we're going to get down into the 60-foot range of depth again, which is pretty shallow for what we're doing uh, at the bottoms of the troughs we've got ten feet under our keel mm. and that's it and we're also getting down into an area on the <clears throat> on the coast of Florida where they have a lot of fish havens which are nothing but wrecks on the bottom you know yeah. things that have been sunk out there yeah. for you know make good fishing grounds um, and if we catch that wire on a wreck down below the stress the extra stress of that is just going to part our two lines. So we are fast running out of options ourselves for what we're going to do. When um, Bill Nodal, the uh, harbor master for NASA, says, "Well, what about anchoring the ship?" and it made perfect sense. I mean, we only in about 70 feet of water, good sand bottom. I could drop one of my anchors, put out 10 shots of chain, you know, 900 feet of chain. We'd ride just fine. The big question is what's going to happen when the ship stops moving. You know, what's going to happen to the tug and barge behind us? Are they going to settle in behind us or are they going to or you know, we going to part the lines? So we we looked at everything there and we said all right well we're gonna anchor and see what happens. The South Bend had gotten their line back on board just before five o'clock. They were about two miles downwind of us and we said and they said well if you're gonna anchor we're headed back in. We've had enough fun out here for the day. And uh, <clears throat> well we said listen why don't you just you know hang around for a little while. Let's see what happens when we anchor if we um, get um. You know, if everything's fine, then just take off and go home. But if the lines part, you might be able to do something. You might be able to help them out. So he says, yep, yeah, okay, fine, I'll do that. Two minutes later, he's given a mayday call. One of his hatches on his after deck has come loose. He's now got six feet of water in his engine room. His oh, no. after deck is just about below water line. He turns around, downwind, runs downwind as fast as he can to make for Fort Pierce. Uh, winds up making it just barely, making it in the jetties at Fort Pierce, runs it aground before he sinks. Coast Guard's out there, brings out pumps to dewater him, everything else. But he was uh, another five minutes and he was sunk outside. So that left us pretty much on our own, but we were able to um, drop, the, uh, drop the anchor, uh, slowly taking turns off the ship, slowing ourselves down. We were able to drop the anchor put out you know, 900 feet of anchor chain, we slowly settled down, we started pointing to the wind, and the uh, Ogeron and the Poseidon settled in right behind us. So we were pretty pretty fortunate about that point in time. So we're there, this is just after 1700, we're settled, all settled down, the three of us in anchor, and we, um, I asked the captain on the tug, I said, I don't know about you, but those two lines are looking pretty small at this point in time, I think we ought to run out a few more. He said, oh yeah, it sounds like a real good idea to me. Um, we sent our guys down below to grab a quick bite to eat, and then we're going to go back out on the after deck, which we could e- get to easily now because we're pointed into the seas, and we're not having any real breaking seas on deck anymore. So we were able to go out there. We're pulling up more mooring lines from our lazarette, getting ready to uh, start running those out when one of the two mooring lines parts that we had out going to the tugboat and it parted at the bow of the tug uh, chafed through there so we're left with one line between the two vessels and that's it and so we worked pretty frantically for the next 45 minutes pulling up lines and devising a way to get more lines back to the Ogeron and we finally wound up doing it with a uh, A loop of this light shot line, this four millimeter shot line from the line throwing gun with a life jacket tied to it, put a big loop over the one remaining line. The wind and the seas dragged the life jacket. Slid it right down the line. Slid it right down the line, went to the bow of the tug. Uh, They were able to hook onto that. Uh, They had a big messenger line on board. We basically wound up with an endless loop between the two vessels. And by eight o'clock that night, we had four lines between the two of us. And so at that point in time, there was no way anything was going to happen. Um, yeah, We were going to stay connected And we sat there for just about two days Waiting for the whole storm system to pass Before they could get another tugboat out to us um, And take everything in You know, well, Actually they sent out two tugboats at the end of this whole thing One to tow the barge up to Port Canaveral The other to tow the, um, the Ogeron into Fort Pierce So she could get repairs done to her main engines Wow, that must uh-
2: Two exciting days here. I'm surprised it took that long for it to calm down too. You were
3: well. We uh it was one of those things we're sitting right between two systems. I mean, 40 miles to the north of us, it wasn't as bad. You know, 40 miles to the south, it wasn't as bad. But we we're just in this really bad zone, hmm. and we just we got the stuffing kicked out of us. And by the fine time it finally eased off, um, it was uh, no late on the seventh, late on the 16th finally the storm system had finally picked up speed again, crossed over Florida, and exited off the coast of Florida. Only about 15 miles away from us, the the center of the eye of the storm passed about 15 miles to the northwest of us. You know, it's like someone flipped a switch. It's just like a you know a yeah. front passes up here. I mean, it's you know wind went out of the northwest, dropped down to 20 knots, everything eased off. Um, the tugboats arrived on station about midnight. That night to try and do it, but there was still a pretty confused chop, six to eight foot chop out there, um, and confused. And we just said, you know, listen, we've done this without any damage to either vessel, essentially, and no one's gotten hurt. Let's wait till daylight. There's no reason not to wait till daylight to finish this job up. Uh, the two tugs that came, had come out went back in. Um, they stayed out there till daylight came out. Then we came in the morning of the seventeenth. They came out, and by ten o'clock or so, we were ready to do the transfer. But at this time, there was also a a big shift between what was going on on the ships and what was going on on land. And the reason was um, salvage. Mm -hmm. Because of what we did and how we did it, we basically had salvage rights to the tug and barge. Well, yeah, that'd be pretty much undeniable, I think. (laughs) Well, it is, but it's it's very unusual for... You know, oil tankers don't do salvage work. (laughs) Oil tankers get salvaged. Um, But because of what we did and how we did it, we wound up with salvage rights to this. So there was a little bit of legal wrangling with the, the paperwork towards the end of this with these other two tugs as to what type of contract they were under before we could let things go. And my company was basically saying, "No, you don't let these go until we give you permission." And I said, "Well, I'm still captain out here. Mm-hmm. Um, we've done everything that we can do. We've kept the t- crew safe. We kept the tug safe. We kept the barge safe. There's no way we can finish this up." And I said, "In 30 minutes, I'm letting them go to get so they can get into port." And they said, "You've got 30 minutes to figure this stuff out. You've got a day and a half to do it. I'll give you 30 more minutes." And so they did it. They figured it all out and at ten o'clock we released the tug in the barge. Um, and an hour later we were underway again, doing what we do, delivering oil to Jacksonville. Yeah. Then you spent many, uh many years in court, I'm sure. We spent it actually um the first six months after that was pretty straightforward. It's just gathering information. I mean, once we got into Jacksonville, we had lawyers coming down there, you know, starting to take statements, depositions, collecting information. NASA was very, very nice about this. They were very happy with what they did, what we did. I mean, we saved, you know, a $50 million piece of property for them. We saved the barge, which is almost more valuable because they only had two barges for transporting these fuel cells. Um, and they, about six months, seven months after this it all happened, um, they'd come forward and said, you know, we think, you know, $5 million is a fair settlement for mm-hmm. this, uh, which was perfect. I mean, 10% of the value, that's right in the range. It, it, salvage awards go anywhere from 4 or 5% on to, you know, 10 or 12%, depending on the value of the cargo and what goes on in this uh Keystone, the company I was working for, thought this was a very fair offer, and it would have been great to settle for that. Um, however, at that point in time, they had to get approval from the Justice Department to pay out that kind of a money. The Justice Department said, no, 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 this is way too much money, and we don't agree with this. So we basically wound up with the uncomfortable thing of having to sue the government, because they just said, no, this is too much money. They didn't deny that we had a claim to salvage, but their idea was, hey, this should be a million-dollar salvage claim, and that's it. Um, That's what started to drag on, and about a year after that, we wound up... At uh, the uh, federal courthouse in New Orleans, going to trial, and the government's offered come up to three million dollars, and then finally to three point three million dollars, which is a substantial amount of money for two and a half days worth of work. But we showed up there at the trial, at the trial, um, and the feeling was at that point in time was, or my feeling was, we didn't do this for money to begin with. You know, we did this to help the five guys of the tugboat. We didn't know what was on the barge when we did this mm-hmm. until after the lines were connected. But we've come this far. I said, let's go see what happens. You know, the judge may look at this thing and said, hey, nice job. Congratulations. You know, here's a million dollars. You know, great work. And we'd be off, you know, we would have, would get less than what the offer was for. Um, but we said, you know what? Let's go in and see what happens. Because we have the best facts, um, the best case that's been. Per- been presented for salvage in 50 years, um, so the the attorneys were very anxious to go in there also and just see how this one played out, um, and it played out in our favor. Um, after a day and a half uh, trial, the judge awarded us six and a half million dollars. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah, he was uh, um, he was very favorable to our side and our argument. And the government obviously appealed because they thought five million dollars was too much money. They certainly thought six and a half million dollars was too much money. Um, two years later, it worked its way through the appeals court, and the appeals court found every point in our favor, um, but they still wound up taking away just about two million dollars. They faulted the trial judge for how he valued the fuel cell. Um, and so the the appeals court had a different way to do it, and uh, that's how they dropped the money down. Mm. Of
2: course, it's all your my tax money that The appeals was right being paid for too right
3: yeah oh yeah and all that was being and at the end of this thing so for just about four years down the road the salvage award that came out of the appeals court was just about four point two million dollars by the time they added interest on top of that for um, the time from the trial to when the appeal finished up we're at four point eight million dollars and by the time you added what we settled with the tugboat for. We were essentially five million dollars yeah so they could have said yes right back then saved a lot of time and money a lot of time and, and money and, and been essentially paid. at the same been essentially at the same thing hmm. but we did we set the uh, we set no a, a record for the largest salvage award that's been given out um, certainly in u.s. history and there's um, a number of people who think it's the largest salvage award that's ever been given out for, yeah. uh, for this type of work
2: well that was a it was a good job <laughs> Uh, and you're you're making or have written a book about
3: this? Yep, there is a book. We've finished it up. I've uh, my expertise is probably uh, is in ship handling. Uh, I've teamed up with another guy um, here in the state to uh, write the book, and together we've put this book together. It's called In Peril, um, and it'll be published by Lions Press and out the first week of November. Good. We'll be looking forward to to seeing that book.
0: Well. That is quite a story, Captain Skip Strong, a Mount Desert now employed by the Penobscot Bay Pilots. Yep, still working on the water. That <laughs> was a heck of a story. The uh, oh, you've got the weather, you've got uh, the boat handling, you've got uh, men in peril, you've got uh, the high tech, uh, you know, uh, Buck Rogers thing of the space shuttle yep. boosters, and then the lawyers descend. Mm-hmm. And it really, in a way. Um, I often wonder if it doesn't matter too much what happened before; it's what they can make of it afterwards. And uh, of course, it all did work out fairly well in in the end. The largest salvage ward uh, possibly in history. The trick being, you've got to find an extremely valuable cargo. Spanish galleons aren't coming and going on the coast of Florida anymore. So, yeah, it's uh, all a matter of chance. You know, when you're
2: uh, responding to a mayday, you don't you don't actually find them. But <laughs> yeah, it was it was his. I guess you could say good luck to uh, come across the that piece of
0: cargo. The thing that gets me about that story too is it's it's uh, interesting enough in the telling, and uh, you know I maneuvered this, I, I turned that, and you think, okay, this is what a seven or nine hundred foot seven hundred
2: foot oil loaded
0: tank. oil tanker drawing thirty five feet or so. Um, that's not casual boat handling at all. Add in on top of that, the wind, the rain. The spray yeah. and then let's bounce everything up and down 20 feet at <laughs> a time in the in the waves you know yeah. and add that all onto the top of it and it's just even if you've been to a place like that I find it hard to imagine That's gonna make a great movie isn't it I think it would but on the other hand you're, did you watch the perfect storm no actually I never did see that well movie. go watch the perfect storm we'll talk about it later okay. but anyway after watching the perfect storm I thought they were they did an excellent job with the fishermen and the whole fishing thing when they got to the actual storm itself, I was kind of disappointed It's all done with models, was it Well, yeah, but it missed the uh, elemental thing that I was just talking about of the noise and the the, the you know, in your eyes the boat going up and down the just the whole overwhelming uh, physical thing that, that you're surrounded with wasn't there in the movie, and mm-hmm. I felt let down by that having seen a little bit of that.
2: probably would be too many customers throwing up on the floor. <laughs>
0: wow it's a place that not many people fortunately get to see and and uh it's not a good place for people to hang out they did an extraordinary job and it uh, did work out in the end skip i guess uh, got a house more or less out of that and you know
2: and the lawyers walked away with probably the biggest chunk
0: and the lawyers did fine and the space shuttle went back up i guess so mm-hmm. everything was fine
2: so yes we're back live on boat talk if you're still listening to us and like that story or have any sort of a voting question 866 866- 625-9378 is a number to call in to Boat Talk.
0: Hopefully, we can cram some more stuff into the end there. I particularly liked uh, when they were uh, talking about the line gun. I took a line from a Coast Guard cutter off the uh, Georgia Florida border uh, before Thanksgiving a number of years ago, and uh, went out on deck to receive the line. Comes from a thirty caliber uh, line throwing gun, and stood behind the mast for protection. It hit the mast. and made a ding in it right above my head. Wow. What a shot. (laughs) And the other thing, uh, if I may, that I remember about that was uh, when we got the line aboard, everybody says, okay, that's it. This is over. Let's have something to eat. Thank God that's done. And it was like, you want some uh, shrimp chow mein? It's like, no, I don't think I do. (laughs) There was shrimp chow mein all over that boat, and the ride got worse after we took a tow 100 miles into Jacksonville, Florida, uh, beamed to a lot of seas that we were running with previously. Mm. that was without a doubt the worst boat ride of my life, being towed in like that. So, I particularly liked the part where they just anchored and waited for it.
2: Oh, in the in the, the imperial story, the tanker,
0: the budget the yeah. barge, and the uh, tow. Thought that was a particularly nice touch.
2: Yeah, and I should also mention too that we are uh, recording this this program, so if you would like to have a copy of that story, a CD, uh, you can call the station during business hours. 469 6600 is the office number. And uh, for a donation, we'll uh, send you a, a copy of the, this show or, or any previous Boat Talk show if you're interested. But if you want to talk to us now, the number again is 866 625 9378. Want to go off to a whole total different tangent? I guess boat we yard could. Art. Um, I did another interview a little while ago with a a person, a a summer resident of uh, the area, lives in Blue Hill, a man who is an architect, but he's also a photographer and has a a show currently uh, on exhibit at the Turtle Gallery in Deer Isle. And here's a little interview with um, David Pearson about his uh, photography workshop or photography exhibit.
4: Well, I've been photographing boatyards per se, uh, for about three years, I've been taking pictures for a long time, but this, but not really focusing on this subject until recently.
2: Were you uh, are you uh, are you a sailor yourself? Yes. Yep. So you've actually been seeing the boatyards for quite a while, but then all of a sudden, or at least had the inspiration in the last few years to to do that.
4: Yeah, I used to. I, I've had um, in college. I had a boat and spent a lot of time in a boatyard, and and uh, always just loved. Visiting and hanging out in boatyards. There's there's something about those places I like.
2: Well, your your eye is very good. I I, I really enjoyed the show there, especially your your waterline series.
4: Well, thank you. Um, that was sort of a, a bit of lanyap. Um, um, I have found a lot of times. It, sometimes you get to a yard and there's there's uh, nothing but plastic hulls around and um, and um, but you know often you'll find um a really some really beautiful patterns just of you know that little zone between where the water and the air meet right. and uh so that that sort of came out of that
2: I think we should probably explain just what the waterline series are for people who uh who are listening who don't really haven't seen that yet
4: um uh, it's uh basically just close-ups of of the of the waterlines of boats um when they're out of the water and um often the paint and the barnacles, and the the salt, and the and the air, um, all kinds of chemical processes happen, and, and biological processes, and and sometimes it's just really beautiful what what you see um, they've left at the end of a season.
2: Yes, I I was really impressed. I um, obviously sort of have the uh, a very sort of abstract um, view when you look at them at first, but you're right. There's there's sort of an organic quality to them too. The way things, uh, especially. Gravity affects this. The pictures. So, um, how long is this show going to be going at the
4: Turtle Gallery? Uh, I'm not sure, but I think it's going to be up this fall, um, at least uh, through September.
2: Mm-hmm. Are, but most of the boatyards you uh, you went to in in Maine?
4: Um, no, they're they're all over. But the the, the photographs that I had, um, for the most part, the photographs that I mounted and put behind glass for our exhibition uh, are more Maine related, but. Mm-hmm. I've been to yards uh, a lot on the Chesapeake Bay because I'm, I'm in Virginia and we're real, real close to the bay here. And, um, and then um, down on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, I've been down there too. And um, there's some really interesting places down in, uh, near, south of New Orleans um, with, with uh, the fishing boats down there. So been to some really interesting work boat yards down there.
2: And some of the waterline series come from those boatyards. I think
4: so. They come from pretty much all over the waterline.
2: <laughs> That's great. Yeah, it's cer- certainly it's the same ocean, but it's
4: uh, yeah pretty interesting. Uh, the,
2: the great variety you have in, in those uh, those photographs. Yeah. So uh, I think that'll probably pretty much do it. I, I other than say uh, it's a it's a fine show. I really enjoyed it, and uh, I hope a lot of other people get a chance to uh, go down to the Turtle Gallery in Deer Isle and and check out your photographs. Well, thanks a lot. And thank you very much. And Welcome back up again next summer. Oh, well, I
4: hope I can spend longer up there next year than I got to this year. Bye-bye.
2: The number, again, is 866-625-9378 if you'd like to talk with Boat Talk. We do have a a caller online. Nope, we don't have a caller online. Uh.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That was pretty cool about... uh uh, somebody photographing the world that you inhabit yourself and looking at it a different way can be, can be very interesting. Well, what struck me was when I first saw the uh,
2: photographs, I didn't realize I was even looking at the side of a boat. I thought it was some sort of an abstract painting or something that I was looking at. And it turned out to be just about a, a two foot square section. Of the, and the water line was at the top. And then you see all these uh, runs and, and different uh, color changes that are in the bottom paint. and. And then I looked at it, and the, the name of the photograph was Waterline Number Two, or something like that. And I,
0: oh, that's what it is. <laughs> that is uh, just what I was saying. Because how many, uh, you know, boot top waterlines have you walked by oh, in right. your life, and and didn't even recognize? It? I think that's pretty I, cool.
2: I have looked at them in a different light now since I've been seeing that 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 exhibit. That's you're right.
0: And it is a very cool thing. The intersection between water and air is uh, it's an interesting, tricky place. Uh, the intertidal zone being particularly interesting because. It exists partly underwater and partly out in the air. Mm-hmm. Um, has to accommodate to a lot of different things, so very interesting concept. I can't wait to see those. Turtle Gallery, Deer Isle. Right.
2: And i uh, have got about five minutes left still if you would like to make a call. Again, the number is eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. if you'd like to
0: join Book Talk. Read a just outstanding boat book. And again, uh, in this case, a book much more than about the boats that were in the book uh, It's called Rowing to Latitude Jill Fredston F-R-E-D-S-T-O-N Fredston And uh, just stunned me I read this book very quickly, too quickly And then I kept it for a couple weeks Even renewed it After I'd finished reading I didn't want to give it back to the library It was that good And uh, Jill and her husband Doug Are avalanche experts And live in Alaska And in the summertime for fun They go rowing in Arctic regions and she has always done it in a rowing shell, and he started off in a kayak uh, poo-pooing her because she can't see where she's going, and he ended up in a rowing shell too. They are super campers. They take everything they need for like three months at a time in these two small vessels and row some pretty hairy places. Uh, They've done the Mackenzie River, the Yukon River, pretty much uh, all the coast of Alaska, more or less. Uh, Good hunks in Norway. Uh, coast of Labrador, east coast of Greenland, uh, I'm sorry, west coast of Greenland, um, just some extraordinary places full of ice, um, uncharted waters. Did I, did I mention the coast of Labrador?
2: Yeah, and, and not, you also mentioned not going, not seeing where you're going to. That always bothers oh, me. Oh, run into growing.
0: icebergs every once in a while, you know, but uh, just fascinating. They've, they've paddled over 20,000, uh, mostly Arctic miles. Uh, they are extraordinarily capable people and they talk quite a bit about risk and hazard and uh... you know how to make decisions about whether to go and no go occasionally they have somebody along with them and that only points out what an efficient uh... unit of super campers and and how good they have got at this kind of travel and they always seem to come back they are not uh... in any way thinking they're on the end of a safety tether and rescuable or anything they drove an old rabbit out from alaska to labrador Left it with a fisherman, so you know we're going to go take these little boats the length of the coast to Labrador and actually lap themselves and come back. And uh, you know if we don't come back by September, keep the car. And the fisherman kind of looked down, went, "Whoa, <laughs> I got a car!" They come back. A lot of bear stories too. Bears everywhere they went. And then uh, while they were having bear problems off in their expedition, they rented their house out, and uh, a cub bear got in there, and then mom followed the cub in, and the people bailed out, and. Uh, a lot of bear adventures, hmm. fascinating, fascinating book. A lot of cultural stuff, um, and again, boats and the traveling being a bigger metaphor for life, and the whole experience just uh, again knocked me flat. Rowing to latitude, Joe Fredston. Yeah. Just the other day, I bought another book about a couple of guys, four guys in two double kayaks doing the illusions. and I thought, hey, more, ah, just I'm sorry, no, no comparison whatsoever. Hmm. Yeah, very disappointed in that second book. Can't even think of the name of it. Okay. Rowing to Latitude, though. Fredston. Extremely recommended.
2: Yeah. Well, we're uh, coming up against the end of the another boat talk. It was a heck
0: of a call in show, wasn't it? Yeah.
2: <laughs> actually, didn't have a single call, but it was certainly a, a good story there. And thanks again to Skip Strong for telling us about that book. The <laughs> name of his book, again, is In Peril. Look for you for that. We're out of here until uh, next October. This is Alan Sprague and Mike Joyce saying goodbye for Boat Talk. You're listening to WERU FM Blue Hill at 89.9 and 102.9 in Bangor. Man
1: was smart. He got himself a Tonto. Because did the dirty work for free. But Tonto, he was smarter and one day said Kemosabe, Oh well, kiss my ass, I bought a boat I'm going out to sea. And if I I set me up on my pony, on my
4: boy
1: And if I were like lightning, I wouldn't need no sneakers Well, I come and go whenever I would please? And I'd scare him by the shade tree, not i scare him by the light pole. But I would not scare my pony on my boat out on the sea. And if I had a boat, I'd go out on the ocean. And if I had a pony, I'd ride him on my boat. And we could all have i go out on the ocean, I set me up on my pony my boat. I sit me upon my pony, on my boat.
4: Support for WERU comes from Acadia, a Mount Desert Island company serving park visitors since 1932, a locally owned national park concessionaire which operates the Jordan Pond House and the Acadia shops in Acadia National Park and downtown Bar Harbor.
0: And the time is 11 o'clock. You are listening to Community Radio, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill and 102.9 Bangor. Stay tuned for On the Wing with John Babcock.
4: Boat Talk is made possible in part by Maine Boats and Harbors magazine, covering Maine's boats, harbors, arts, and architecture since 1987, bringing the coast as close as the mailbox, on the web at Mainboats.com.